0: Hello, Northeast Christian Church, and welcome to our online services. Thank you for joining us today. If you miss any part of today's service and you want to catch it again, you can do so by checking us out on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. We also encourage you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date on everything we have going on here at the church. God bless and enjoy the rest of the service. Thank you, Kristen. Appreciate that. And I hope you guys do plug in to Serve Our City. They definitely need the volunteers, and uh, it's a good ministry. We're happy to support that. Uh, Pastor Paul's in Israel today, so you're stuck with me. I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, I'm delighted to be able, though, to share God's Word with you today. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you're with us today. We'll be continuing our teachings on the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the four accounts of the life and works of Jesus. I believe that today's message will be one of those timely scriptures that come along every so often. God's Word is always timeless. It's universal. It's always relevant. However, sometimes it's also timely and speaks pointedly to the cultural issues that we're facing in our day. And today is one of those days. I haven't really planned this. We simply tried to teach through books of the Bible. And the reason we do that is because we know as pastors, it's more important for you to understand this book and be able to discern it for yourself than it is to have buy-in to any one minister's teaching. Because you're going to hear opinions your whole life of priests, of pastors, of ministers. But I want you to be able to open this book and find your way and orient yourself. I want to give you a compass so that no matter where you find yourself in life, you can navigate the Word of God. And that's why we teach through books of the Bible. And today, we're going to be arriving at Luke chapter 6. We'll be returning to Luke chapter 5 next week, but today I want to focus on Luke 6 because it helps us do something. Luke 5 tells us how Jesus redeemed individual people, but Luke 6 tells us how he does this for the whole church. And if we look at Luke chapter 6 first, it's like looking at the whole forest before we focus on the individual trees. It puts things in perspective for us. It shows us how God works with us on a bigger scale, so we can better see how he works with us on an individual scale. Today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 12. You can follow along in your own Bible. You can just listen to me if you'd like. It's going to be Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. We'll read this, we'll pray together, and then we'll jump in. Again, that's Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Adelphus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is God's word. Father, this morning, I pray for a spirit of unity. Most of all, Lord, I pray that your grace would be lifted up above everything else, that people would see that nobody is disqualified from being a follower of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bring a spirit of unity today to this body, to your body, that we would realize that we have one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, and one faith, and that we would look at each other and call each other brother, sister, and that we would all look to you and have one Father. And we ask this in the name of Christ, your Son. Amen. Today, Luke gives us a window into how Jesus began to form this thing that we call the church. There's a popular saying today that goes something like this, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. Or sometimes you might hear it more like this, I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in organized religion. And I, I used to say those things before I became a Christian, and I'm sure teenage me would appreciate the irony of now being a minister, but contrary to this cultural attitude, Jesus organized his followers. Wow, that was weird. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right, so contrary to this, this cultural attitude, Jesus organized his followers, All right, he didn't sit on the beach and sing kumbaya like some carefree spiritual hippie vegan surfer, okay? He had a mission, and missions require organization. Historically, however, when the church loses its mission and keeps its organization, it becomes oppressive, insular, self-focused, greedy, and decadent, just like any other corporation. And when that happens, organization itself gets a bad rap. When in reality, it's people's abandonment of mission that's the problem. Jesus has been preaching all throughout the countryside up to this point, but he knows he's not going to finish his work alone. His disciples will be the one to carry his message to the world, and he has to organize. He's got to prepare. He's got to train them to finish this. And this is the foreground or the backdrop of today's message. It's not the main point, but it's still important organized religion is as good or as bad as its mission. If its mission is self-aggrandizement, collection of wealth, bigger facilities, lights that don't freak out, and other such things like that, promoting celebrity preachers who have $3,000 outfits and wear things more expensive than the people in their congregation make in a month and bigger social media presences, then it is an abomination and is antithetical to the gospel of Christ. But if its mission is the redemption of our community, our world, and the individuals in it through Jesus, then it's an organized wing of God's work. Some of you, have hated organized religion your whole lives, and you approach it with a good bit of skepticism. And to you, I say, you're absolutely right. There are numerous examples in our day and in days gone by of greedy men playing at religion. But there are also numerous examples of good men and women who have given everything, sacrificed much, and succeeded because they were intentional. As Gandhi once said, a few drops of dirt in the ocean does not make the whole thing dirty. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and I hope that this church can serve as a mini example of that to you. Okay, we're not going to have the the best facilities; we have adequate ones. <laughs> You got a preview of that this morning, okay? You're you're never going to see me wearing thousand-dollar sneakers like you're seeing some megachurch pastors today wear, and may God have mercy on us to always keep Jesus at our forefront and the love of wealth far from our hearts. We do our best, yes, we do our best to first prioritize the mission of God and take care of the physical things that need to be taken care of as we can. Jesus, right from the outset of His ministry, is organizing. He is seeking leaders so that He can begin to steward and pass on the work of God. That is what a church is. It's an organized family that's accomplishing the Father's will. And we're going to take a look at how Jesus does that this morning. How did he organize it? We're going we're to study him so we can learn that a little bit better for ourselves. In verse 12, it says this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Our first point of the day, number one, how did Jesus choose his apostles? How did Jesus choose his apostles? By prayer. First, take a look at this phrase, in these days. What, what days? His busy days. In Luke chapter 4 and 5, as we heard a few weeks ago, Jesus begins his ministry. He's been preaching, teaching, healing, debating religious leaders, redeeming lives, calling disciples, and more. It's been a busy season for Jesus. The German reformer and monk, you might have, might have heard of him, Martin Luther, once said this, I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. When I'm my most stressed, fast-paced, and worn out, it's those moments where I need to pray the most, especially when it comes to making important decisions, because it's easy to make the wrong decision when you're depending on your own perception of things, especially when you're tired. Samuel, the prophet in the Old Testament, experiences this. God sends him to a family, the family of Jesse, because God tells him one of these sons is going to be king over the entire nation of Israel. And so God sends Samuel to anoint the new king, but he's not sure which son it's going to be. So he arrives, and Samuel sees the most impressive, big, strong son, like Pastor Dylan, right? like that. (laughs) And says, surely this is the Lord's chosen one. And God says to him, no. Man judges by the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God chooses the youngest, smallest runt of the family named David, who becomes the ancestor of Jesus himself. Like Jesus, you and I need to take a time out and remove ourselves from the busyness of life. I don't know if you realize this, but your life's work and God's mission will not go further by you staying in fifth gear 24-7. Slow down. I want to go far, not fast. And to do that, I need to pray. We need to slow down and pray so that we make the right decisions along the way. Prayer is fundamentally an act of humility. It's the admission that, God, I don't have the answer. I don't have what it takes. I am powerless, but you are powerful. It's an outstretched hand that says, I don't know, but you do. And when we don't take time to pray, I think it's because we've bought into one of a few lies. I know this, Because at different seasons of my life, I have been in all of these places. And it may be helpful for you to jot some of these down. They're not exhaustive, but they're helpful. I believe Jesus' prayer habits teach us how to resist these three temptations. Temptation or lie number one. I'm too busy and things won't get done if I don't do them go ahead, throw your hand up if you believe that lie, okay? You've all been there. That is a lie. They will, and your efforts are not nearly as indispensable as you believe they are. In the first two years at this church, Pastor Paul and I were working so hard that he started to get bald patches all over his head, and I ended up in the hospital with severe stomach pains. We believed the lie that God's work was dependent on our efforts, and we probably worked a whole lot more than we prayed. God's mission is not dependent on you. Even with the urgency of Jesus' mission to redeem all of mankind, He found time to do nothing but talk with God. Lie number two. I know what to do. That's a huge lie. If you think you have life, God, and His purpose for you figured out, why pray? Prayer is humbling. It will humble you. It brings you to a place of childlike faith that says what Jesus says I don't know. Prayer is a place of I don't know's. But God does. And if you think you know, it's probably because you're either very young or you haven't been walking with God a very long time. Remember that as much as Jesus was God, he was man and needed to pray because God knew what the church needed. Lie number three God's objective and mine are the same. You may be under the false assumption that you and God have the same goals in mind and that may be keeping you from prayer. And this is where things can get ugly when you assume that the house that you're building and the house that God is building are the same thing, that your life's mission and God's mission are the same. Everybody has this temptation, and so did Jesus. Jesus has to guard himself against this way of thinking by praying at the end of his life, not my will be done, Father, but yours. And it's impossible for us to have that disposition or that attitude unless we submit ourselves to God for his examination of our desires. And we do that through prayer. Jesus had desires that he knew are not what God wanted, and he had to pray to overcome them. I wonder if Jesus thought that some other disciples should have been among the twelve. I wonder if his first instincts were wrong, just like the prophet Samuel with David's brothers. Maybe Jesus saw the big guy who prayed really loud and really well and the intelligent scribe who knew the the Bible backwards and forwards and thought to himself, now those are the ones that God wants around me. He needed the guidance of God's Spirit to help him make the right decisions and choose the right people, so much so that he prays all night long. Remember the book of Hebrews says, Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet was without sin. He knows what it's like to be drawn in by false appearances. He knows what it is like to be human. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. Jesus needed to pray before he picked his apostles and leaders. He needed God's help before he made that choice. Because prayer will clarify what God wants, not just what you think. Let me say that again. Prayer will clarify what God wants, not just what you think. Keep reminding yourself of that and hit the reset button every morning like Jesus. When you have to make decisions, pray along with our Lord, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Like Isaiah said, his thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. They're higher. The fact that the Son of God had to pray all night before this decision should model for us the need to pause before big moments in our lives. What's our tagline as a church every January? Pray first. Before we do anything, let's ask for God's help assistance, wisdom, and support. God is not out to get you and steal your happiness. He wants to help you, so don't shut him out of the biggest moments in your life. Pray. Number one, how did Jesus choose his apostles? By prayer. And you and I would do well to emulate and mirror him in this habit. Second point for today, number two, what kind of people Did Jesus choose? What was the background, the character, the personality of the people that Jesus selected to be His apostles? We'll examine a few of them in detail next week, but today we get a broad picture in verses 14 to 16. Listen to this. Simon, whom He named Peter, Andrew, His brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Adelphus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became Traitor. Here's the main place that I want us to camp this morning. If you know the background of these men, you get a picture of how radical Jesus was and how powerfully He transformed people. He pulled people from insanely different backgrounds together under one banner: the kingdom of God. That's why I believe today's scripture is timely as well as timeless. We live in a divided age, in case you haven't been paying attention. Truckers and activists, MAGA supporters and BLM supporters, Republicans and Democrats, Boomers and Gen Z, Evangelicals and Atheists, on and on and on and on. People love to divide one another. However, I want to protect you against thinking that we are in a uniquely divided age. Technology may have given us broader exposure to worldwide division and hatred, but human nature remains the same. And lest you and I think we're the worst we've ever been, even in our nation's history, need I remind you that in the 1960s, one president and one presidential candidate were assassinated, both Kennedy brothers. In the 1980s, a sitting president, Ronald Reagan, was shot. We have been in bad places before, and we are not too far gone for God to heal our nation and heal our land. If he brought us back from that precipice, he can bring us back from this one. And the division was as present in Jesus's day as it is today. In his day, there were Romans, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Scaries, Essenes, Idumenians, and more, and they all hated each other. They hated each other for religious reasons, political reasons, and economic reasons. Does this sound familiar yet? They were literally killing each other, each other. That's how divided they were. And in Christ's day, division over power, religion, and money were just as common as they are today. We just go by different names now, socialists and capitalists and conservatives and progressives and agnostics and fundamentalists, which makes Jesus' list of followers an enigma It's a mystery when you read through this list of people that any cohesive church formed at all. They were not natural friends. When I was in college, I was interning for a Christian drug rehab program, and we would go into the projects in Coney Island, the Bronx, Spanish Harlem, all over New York City, and try to raise awareness about the program and, and talk to people about Jesus. And I was walking outside some projects in Coney Island one day. I was handing out some information about the program, and I was talking to this group of people about Jesus. And this gentleman comes up to me screaming in my face, Christianity is a white man's religion. And he berated me for a solid 30 to 60 seconds. And I listened, and he walked away before I said anything. But that's the perception of many people today, that Christianity is a white thing, or an American thing, or only a politically conservative thing, or an oppressive thing, and nothing could be farther from the truth. First, Christianity was adopted by the regions of Armenia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Yemen, and India before it was ever celebrated and embraced in Europe. It was primarily an Asian, Middle Eastern, African, and Indian faith for the first 300 years. And when European bishops were arguing over who's the boss of the church, Asian Christian missionaries were already in China, Korea, and Vietnam by the late 600s. But regardless of any of that, Christianity does not belong to any people or race it belongs to all of us and calls all of us to belong to him. Jesus gives us a picture of his final church in the book of Revelation from every tribe, nation, and tongue by the way he picks his apostles right here. Though they were all Jewish, they could not have been more divergent in every other way. Look at Judas Iscariot. Though he was a traitor, Jesus picked him. Iscariot, by the way, was not a surname or a last name, no matter what Wikipedia tells you. Wikipedia is trash, sorry to inform you. Iscariot was a name for a group of assassins who the Romans called Scarii. They would walk up to you in a crowd if you were a Roman or a Roman sympathizer and they would knife you, scream for help, and run away. They were not good And Jesus picks a political murderer as one of his 12 and still believed he had a chance of changing. Judas probably got along with Simon the Zealot, another member of the 12 apostles, who was a rebel fighter against the Romans. Zealots were this group of resistance fighters against Roman occupation. They hated the Romans and were willing to fight them in open combat. They were freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on what side of the political aisle you were on in his day. That was Simon the Zealot. And Jesus calls a man like that to lay down his sword and follow him. And then you have Matthew, the tax collector. Simon and Judas probably hated Matthew. Matthew was the guy collecting taxes for the Roman occupiers of Israel. He was considered the ultimate traitor to his people and race. These men are as polar opposite on the political and economic scale as you can imagine. Matthew is a rich man in favor with the political elites of his day, and Simon and Judas are ostracized, impoverished political outcasts, and Jesus picked them both people who could not be farther apart ideologically, politically, economically, and even in their religious observance, Jesus picked them. And if He picked them, there's nothing to say He can't pick you and pick someone completely unlike you as well. And then tell you not only to tolerate one another, but to love each other more than you love your causes, because now you are family through the blood of Christ. This morning, as they were singing forever, and I, the, the weight of what Jesus did hit me. And when you understand that, you understand far more unites us in this family of God than divides us. This is a picture of the church. When I entered college, I hated my roommate. Correction, we hated each other, technically. <laughs> he was a wannabe basketball player, And I was a wannabe Bible scholar, and we could not have been more opposite, okay? He grew up in the the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and I grew up in a town that was whiter than Wonder Bread. He was tenacious and outspoken, and I was calm and reserved, despite what you see this morning. Literally nothing but Jesus could have brought us together. Today, we're best friends. I was the best man at his wedding, and he'll likely be the best man at mine. And you know what we found? Over time, our differences didn't matter as much Because we had more in common in Jesus than distinctions in everything else. More united us as redeemed humans than separated us by temperament and culture. And believe me, a lot separated us. I was the kind of guy who talked through his problems. Anthony was the kind of guy who threw things at walls when he had problems, okay? It was different. To give you a modern picture of the kind of people that Jesus brought together... It would be like inviting an ISIS insurgent and an IRS agent to sit down and have dinner together and sign adoption papers to become brothers. They'd both have the same dad now. One wants to bring down the United States and the other is collecting taxes for them. I hope you catch the radically divergent nature of Jesus' followers. Simon, the head apostle who became, uh, he became Peter, Jesus' name's him Peter, is a blue-collar fisherman. Peter would have been considered ceremonially unclean pretty much all the time because he was handling seafood, whereas people like Simon the Zealot kept themselves ritually pure in every circumstance in strict observance of the Jewish religious law. These men were religiously different in their observance. Their backgrounds, lifestyle, you name it, were so different. Is it any wonder that every couple of chapters we get a picture of the apostles arguing with each other? They're fighting over who's the best, who's the boss, political questions, religious questions, and so on. They're not too different than most of us here in the church today. And I think Jesus knew the human condition wouldn't change and wanted us to see that he intentionally and prayerfully selected people who did not get along. Why? Why not just pick a side? Why not just tell us who's less wrong? I think Jesus wanted us to get the message that God is not here to take sides. He's here to take over. God is not interested in supporting your political cause. He is here for his own cause and glory. Number three, what does this mean for the church today? God is not here to take sides. He's here to take over. One of my Bible professors said that years ago, and I've begun to see a little more clearly what it means. I will never tell you how to vote, and I will never tell you who I vote for. Why? Is it because I care about you so much and want to keep you all very happy and pleased with me? No. It's because I think far too many of us are far too preoccupied with temporary political problems that will one day be gone. I have news for you. Every kingdom on this earth will be overthrown by King Jesus. And I would hate... I would hate... For you to give your time, attention, and heart to causes that are not God's kingdom, because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and it is not coming in ways that may be observed. What does that mean? It means God primarily works in human hearts, not through primarily through political structures and some of us think that if we fix policies and pass laws then justice will come listen I am not against social justice and being involved in things that's why we give to serve our city that's why we go out and support Amira House and Project Rescue pulling women out of human trafficking Jesus is all about that but he wants you to do it with the right spirit a spirit that says I'm not trying to fix the world I'm just trying to help a few people in it because the king is coming Jesus' primary concern wasn't lofty. Instead, he's gathering people around him so that he can love God and love each other and build a family. When we view our enemies as family, then the kingdom will come. And the only way we can see enemies turn into family and wrongs be righted is by the blood of the cross. Nothing else can make peace. Nothing else can right wrongs. And nothing else can pay for the wrongs that have been done to you except the cross of Jesus Christ. Nobody has enough money in the world. Nobody has enough resource in the world to make up for the evils that have been done. But God is the great rectifier and he will set things right. And justice comes, when the King comes, and that is why the Bible ends with a one-word prayer, Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I don't care if you think you have the master plan to correct all social injustices and create utopia here on earth. You don't. And do you know why? Because human nature will inevitably pollute it. Arguably the most famous preacher in English history, Charles Spurgeon, once said it this way. A man approached him and said, I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. I can't find an authentic one. And Spurgeon turns to him and says, well, good sir, if you happen to find it, please do me a favor and don't join it because you will ruin it. Here's the bare bones. Jesus called men and women from all veins of life to show them that their primary problem wasn't Rome, it wasn't tax collectors, it wasn't violent insurgents, it wasn't economic imbalances, it wasn't racial tensions, it wasn't religious devotion, it it was primarily sin. And all of those things are what happen when you and I fail to deal with the sin in our own life. James, the brother of Jesus, puts it this way, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. What does the brother of Jesus say is the source of all our ailments as human beings? What is the source of all greed, economic imbalance, political violence, racism, religious hatred, and oppressive nations? What is the source? Our passions are at war within us. We want, we desire, we grab. You have it and I want it. I deserve it and you don't. Isn't that what the apostles keep on doing with all their fighting? I'm the greatest. I should lead the church. That's what they keep saying to each other. And doesn't that sound like today? Your group is bad. Your culture is bad. Your policies are bad. Mine are good and will fix everything. Doesn't that sound familiar? what does this mean for the church today? It means a wake-up call. I'm weary of hearing among the greater Christian community who are supposed to love one another, all the divisive rhetoric on both sides. I feel that this is what the Spirit of the Lord would say to this church and the church your biggest problem isn't your enemies, it's your sin. Because if you dealt with your own sin, you'd know how to love your enemy instead of defeating them. Let me say that again. Your biggest problem isn't your enemies, it's your sin. Because if you dealt with your own sin, you'd know how to love your enemy instead of defeating them. Some of us are progressives and conservatives at the expense of being Christian. And we can be more concerned with winning an argument than winning a person. Some of us are more literate in political policy and ideas than we are in the Scriptures. Is it any wonder that we're so full of anger and anxiety and hate? Is it any wonder that we're so tired? Let me just speak for a moment lovingly as one of your pastors as somebody who's responsible for this corner, this tiny little corner of the body of Christ. I don't care what your opinions are about any issue under the sun until I see that you actually love the people around you and take your own sin more seriously than you take the sins of others. Some of us view the symptoms of sin as bigger issues than the actual sin in our own life, and we need to repent. And we need to do some serious self-reflection. The call Jesus gives to his apostles, he's still offering to every man and woman in the sound of my voice, follow me, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Stop trying to fix the world's problems when you can't even stop your own part in messing it up. Because your biggest problem is not your enemies, it's your sin. Your biggest problem isn't another race, another political party, or a poor economic policy. Your sin is more oppressive than any nation, more ruthless than any opponent, more disheartening than any poverty, and more offensive than any statement in God's eyes. And maybe as Christians, we need less time pontificating on how to fix society, and a little more practice on how to love our enemies within it, because that's how it changes. Let's present Jesus as someone whose objective is to redeem his enemies, not defeat them. That's what Romans 5 says. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us to redeem us. While we were his enemies and opposed to him, he rescued us. That's what Lindsay wept over this morning and what I hope every one of our souls would weep over in the coming season. That you would weep and not rage at your enemies. Give blessing in return for cursing. And when you're wronged by others, and you will be, be like Jesus who blessed his enemies, who prayed for his enemies while they nailed him to the cross. God doesn't need our outrage to fix the world. He's modeled the way to do that already. A well-respected author out of Houston, Dr. Brené Brown once said, blame is a way to discharge pain. And it feels good when we can place our pain solely on another individual or another group. But perhaps instead of blaming, Jesus is teaching us the longer and more difficult way to deal with our pain by taking a look at ourselves and learning to forgive our enemies. When he selects his apostles, his leaders, he chose men who would agree on virtually nothing but him. And that's intentional, because we can't demand that people become more like us. That's not repentance. We ask that people become more like God. That's true repentance. And those are different things because our biggest problem is not our enemies. It's our sin. It's not nations or ideologies. It's the evil that lies within each and every one of us. And God puts us in community so that we have to love those who are not like us and never will be because they're called to be a redeemed version of themselves. Guess what? I'm still calm and reserved in most environments, except preaching, apparently. And my college roommate and my best friend is still tenacious and headbutts every problem that he sees. He's Simon the Zealot, and God loves him for that. You see, we all have things about our background and our culture that God wants to remove, but mostly I think we have things about our culture and background that God wants to redeem, not eradicate. I'll invite the worship team back at this point. There's a fourth thing that I haven't put on here that I want you to consider. Number four, not just what this means for the church today, but what does this mean for you as an individual? It means that if you look to the woman to your life, your man or woman to your right or to your left, the person right next to you, They may be a member of a different political party, a different culture, a different race, and have different perspectives on the world. There's much that's different and diverse about this church. However, there's one thing you certainly have in common with your neighbor. You are all forgiven sinners who at one time were God's enemy until Jesus redeemed you by the blood of His cross. Nobody is sinless in the eyes of God, and we are all redeemed through Him. Paul the Apostle, the 13th Apostle that comes later, says... You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive by canceling the record of debt that stands against you. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And now there is no more any Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Or to translate the Greek differently here. Christ is everything to us, and He's in every single one of us. Nobody is outside of God's grace. Here's the main point of all of this that we read about today. The main point is not, be nice to people who are different than you. That's part of it, yeah, you should probably do that. But the main thing I think Luke wants to get across to us here is that no one is disqualified from being a follower of Christ, even the person that you think would be most disqualified. Even the person opposite from you culturally, even the person opposite from you politically, even the person that you couldn't ever see how God would use someone like that. No one is disqualified from following the Lord and being used by Him, including you no matter what anybody said about you, no matter how anybody might have put you down, no matter how many religious institutions may have pushed you out, at the end of the day, no one is disqualified from being a follower of Christ. If Jesus picked these men who were so radically different, there is nothing about you that disqualifies you because the blood of Christ covers you. No one is too far gone for God's grace, and no one's disqualified from being a part of God's church and God's mission. That's the story of these apostles. They were not the ideal candidate. They were nobody's first pick. Rabbis were not going around and saying, I really want that guy. Nope, these were not great men. They were normal people. By the way, if you wanted an artistic rendition of these people's lives, I highly recommend you watch The Chosen, all right? I normally think Christian movies and TV shows are cheesy, but this series is mind-blowingly good. We love it so much, by the way, we put it on our church app. You can watch it there for free if you download the NECC app on the Google Play or Apple App Store. Just a shameless plug for our app. If God called this group of people to lead His church imagine what he could do if you yielded to him in your life. All these people came to Jesus by the same road, the road of repentance. They had all sinned in different directions. Now they're called to walk in the same direction to the Son of God. Some of them sinned by economic reasons. Some of them sinned by religious reasons. Some of them sinned politically. But you know what? Jesus redeems all kinds of people from all avenues of life and makes them walk on the same road together, the road of repentance. And that's, I think, the road he might be calling you to. What does this mean for you? That this isn't a road you walk where you point out everybody else's sins around you like the apostles did in their early days, but the one where you deal with your own sin so that God can do great and beautiful things in your life, productive, beautiful, gracious things because you're the kind of person who says, God, what's my sin? How can I do better? God, what do you want to do in me instead of looking around you and saying, not qualified, not qualified, I'm better than you, point, point, point. Instead of somebody who says, God, search me. We are at our best as a church when we're organized, prayerful, humble, and when we take a deep self-inventory of our own sins before we try to deal with everybody else's. As Paul the Apostle says in Galatians, restore everyone caught in transgression, but be watchful lest you too be tempted. And as a pastor, I feel this press on myself, even as I call you to repentance and faith. I'm calling you to reflect on yourself and realize that your sin is not a disqualifier of you and other people's sins are not necessarily disqualifiers of them either. Be a people of understanding, humility, and restoration because that's the kind of church that we aim to be. And that starts with taking a moment of introspection, prayer, and reflection to ask God to search you, not search your neighbor, not search your spouse, not search the person who did you wrong, but to search you. I want you to pray this prayer with me, Then we're going to worship together and take just a moment to reflect before we end today. It's a prayer of David. David's praying against all of his enemies. He's angry with them. By the way, the Psalms are a great way to pray your emotions, whatever emotion you're having. Psalm 139 is a prayer of anger with many of David's opponents, but then he stops and realizes that God may not change his opponents, but God can change him. And so he prays this famous prayer at the end of Psalm 139 that I want to pray over you and invite you to pray with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May we always be the kind of people who take our own sin more seriously than the sins of our enemies and realize that the greatest threat to the church is not what's outside of it, but it's what's within us. May we be the kind of people who love our enemies and not defeat them. And thus mirror Christ when nailed to the cross who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And may we be the kind of people who see the redemption of those that otherwise couldn't get it. And that starts with walking on the road of repentance ourselves by asking God to search us, cleanse us, and see us as we are, not as we'd like to be. I'm going to invite you to rise, stand, take some time, worship the Lord, and search your heart. you for joining us for today's service. If you missed any part of this sermon or you want to catch it again, you can do so by going to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. And I also encourage you to go to lolag.org or ne-cc.org if you want to stay up to date on everything we have going on. God bless, and we'll see you next week.